Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Wiley Society Updates podcast. I'm Bill DeLuise. In the last episode, we talked about the importance of asking for evidence and how to empower the public, policymakers, journalists, and other decision makers to ask whether something has been peer reviewed as a way to evaluate the validity of its claims. Now, don't get me wrong, peer review is an amazing tool, but scientific communication has a larger problem, something that peer review alone, at least as it currently exists, often isn't enough to solve. And that problem is reproducibility. In June of 2016, Brian Nozick, the executive director of the Center for Open Science, spoke about this problem and what you and others in the research community can do to address it. And in case you're not familiar with the Center for Open Science, it's a nonprofit technology company that builds free and open source services to try to increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility of scientific research. Here's Brian. Right, what are core scientific values? Openness or transparency, right? I make a claim. Uh, you don't believe that claim because I say it. You come to believe it based on being able to see how it is I arrived at that claim. I show you the methodology. I show you the data. I show you the evidence. I show you the process by which I arrived at that claim. And then you get to evaluate that to critique it, credit it, whatever else you want to do with it. Another one is reproducibility, right? I make a claim and show you how I, I arrived there. You don't have to believe it because I said I did it. In principle, you could repeat the same procedure and arrive at the same evidence. And if you can't do that, it doesn't become a credible scientific claim. Right? Likewise, disinterestedness, right? I am, as a scientist, supposed to be motivated by knowledge and discovery, uh, not uh, treating scientists as a competition uh, to get ahead of you uh, or uh, to advance my own agenda of the things I already believe and just looking for ways to confirm them. So why would we have gaps between values and practices? Well, it's because I'm also a practicing scientist and I need to survive and thrive in the field. So I need to get a job, I need to find ways to keep that job, and I need to find ways to advance in that career. And the currency of that is through publication. I need to publish, published in prestigious outlets, and publish frequently in order to advance through those steps. And so to the extent that the incentives for publication are not aligned uh, with the values of science, then I might have a conflict of interest. The behaviors that I do in order to survive as a scientist might be misaligned with the things that would be the most benefit to advancing science. So let's pause here. That gap that Brian describes between scientific values and scientific practice is something that's being talked about a lot lately. You've probably seen some of the studies that show that an alarmingly large percentage of published results aren't reproducible. Some people are calling this a reproducibility crisis, and it's causing members of the scholarly community to question how some current practices and research might actually undermine the advancement of knowledge. Here's Brian again. So let's start with some of the problems, and uh, just this will be very brief, because what are the core problems in reproducibility? Why are we supposedly in this crisis? Well, there's a number of things that have been known since the 1950s and 60s, as methodologists have done reviews, that bias the published literature to make it less credible than it actually is. Right, so I have great flexibility in the ways that I analyze the data as it's coming in. I have multiple choices that I can make. Some of those choices will make those findings look better for publication than others. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are better uh, for uh, accuracy in the research. I also do many more experiments than I publish. And so I have to make choices, and sometimes editors or reviewers make choices, of what gets through. 
what is it that becomes part of the published literature that's not necessarily representative of what actually happens in the laboratory. We have a tendency to ignore null relationships. I didn't find this relationship is much more boring than saying we found a relationship between these variables or this treatment has an effect on these outcomes. And so the literature tends to be replete with positive results and not uh, with null results. And finally, there are very few incentives for doing replications of others' work. Right? Innovation is the driver of science. It's how we make progress and open new areas. Uh, and redoing what someone else did to try to increase precision of understanding about it or even just verify it is not doing the thing that is going to maximize my research outcomes. And so replication is not a common practice in the field. So if the literature ends up being biased, then we have very little way of self-correcting. Right? Some of the core principle of science is that it self-corrects. If we never replicate to verify, we can't self-correct. We just continue to build on, uh, on innovations. So Brian's saying that if I'm a practicing researcher, I face a pretty big problem. The incentives for my success as a scientist are focused on me getting published and not on me getting it right. And the more I can maximize the chances of publishing my results, the more I'll advance my career, but maybe at the cost of the accuracy of those results, maybe without even realizing that I'm doing it. Nobody wants this to be the case, but it happens because scientists operate in a complicated ecosystem. The scientific community of researchers themselves and how they communicate, funders and what they demand, universities, policies and practices for hiring and tenure and promotion, journals and what's required in order to get published in those journals, and societies that set the norm for their disciplines. So what can societies do to help researchers live up to their values? Okay, so let me talk about a few different incentives that we have been working on to make available for journals and funders to try to nudge these incentives so that researchers are more aligned with what's good for them as being good for science. The first is a very, very simple one, badges. Right? Badges are ways of signaling a behavior that is a desirable behavior. If a journal decides to offer badges for open data or open materials or pre-registration, uh, then it's signaling that we think these things are good things to do. If authors who have their articles accepted uh, are offered to get those badges, then they can say, is that something that I want to have acknowledged on my paper, uh, that I have open data and where it is? Then they can get that acknowledgement and actually have some small incentive for doing a behavior that otherwise is not incentivized in their everyday work. That incentivizing pays off. Brian went on to give an example of a journal in the social sciences that adopted badges that authors could earn for sharing their data. The average data sharing rate in the field is about 5%. After offering the optional badges, data sharing by authors publishing in the journal shot up to 40%. Amazing. But that's not the only thing that societies can do. Another uh, is the top guidelines, transparency and openness promotion guidelines. These were published in Science in July this past year. Uh, and the goal of the top guidelines, which were formulated uh, at a meeting uh, we hosted in uh, November 2014, was to consolidate the various uh, guidelines and principles of transparency that have been uh, across many different disciplines into a very simple uh, standard uh, that journals and funders could adopt uh, for their authors uh, or their grantees to be more open in their research practices. Uh, but the, the basics of the top guidelines are that there are eight different categories of transparency. Citing data, making it a creditable research object, transparency of the research design, of the materials, data, the analytic methods, or code, 
uh, pre-registration of studies. Uh, each of these uh, are, have three levels. Uh, and the goal of making them eight separate standards and three levels of each is to appreciate the fact that there is variation across scientific disciplines about how prepared groups are for adopting more or less stringent standards for transparency. Brian makes a good point here. Different disciplines currently have different expectations for data sharing. So signing on to the top guidelines allows you to choose the level of data sharing that makes most sense for your journal, while taking an important step towards supporting openness and transparency. He didn't end there, though. Uh, one more example that's uh, somewhat more radical, just to give you ideas of things that, uh, directions that this can go. So here is the cartoon version of how research gets done, right? You design a study, you collect and analyze some data, you write a report, and then you publish it. But of course, there is that barrier of peer review uh, that happens after the research is done. So all of my incentives in the standard process of doing research are make that report as beautiful as possible to get through peer review as a barrier uh, to what I want, publication. Register Reports makes one simple change to this process. It moves peer review to after the design phase. So now what I do is I design my study, motivate my research question, and then submit that to the journal for review and say, this is what I'm going to do uh, in this research. The reviewers evaluate whether that question is worth knowing the answer to and whether the methodology is effective at addressing, testing that question. And then they give an in-principle acceptance if it passes through peer review, saying that whatever the outcome, whether positive or negative, uh, we will publish the results if you follow through with this methodology the way we asked you to do it. Right. And if I do, then my incentives are not to try to make it more beautiful than it is. My incentives are to make that design as robust and effective as possible. Uh, and then this removes the biases against negative results because not even the reviewers know the outcomes. It also removes biases from, for ideological conflicts uh, in particular disciplines or theories, right? When someone submits, when I'm a peer reviewer and someone submits something that's counter to one of my theories, I say, this is the worst research I've ever seen. Reject. When it's consistent with one of my theories, I say, oh my gosh, this is great research. I see all these wonderful things in the methodologies, except I don't have that opportunity when I don't even know what the outcomes are going to be of the research. All right. So at this point, you might be thinking, hang on. Peer review before any data is even collected? That's ridiculous. Well, in fact, there are over 20 journals currently using registered reports as a submission option. And it's going pretty well. If you think about it, peer review before any experiments are conducted is basically what happens when a researcher applies for a grant. Funders don't know the outcome of the research before they fund it. They just decide that the research is worth doing. That's how registered reports work, except for publication, not funding. So there you have it. That's three things societies can do to support research integrity by incentivizing transparency, openness, and reproducibility in their journals. Offer badges to authors for making their data available. Adopt the top guidelines. And maybe even experiment with registered reports as a submission option and see what happens. Researchers want to be open and transparent and to be able to build off each other's work but they aren't often incentivized to do it on a day-to-day -day basis. Societies have a major role to play in helping to shift the culture of research communications toward greater openness and collaboration. And the three ideas that Brian offered today are a great place to get started. For more tools and resources from the Center for Open Science, you can also visit cos.io. The Wiley Society Updates podcast is a production of Wiley Society Services Program. 
At Wiley, we're helping society spread knowledge, advance their discipline, and expand their community by partnering with them to enhance the quality, reach, and impact of their publishing programs. Our theme music was provided by Jason Shaw and editing by Dennis Velasco. The Wiley Society Executive Seminar, where Brian Nozak delivered his remarks, was designed with support from Allison Labati, Caroline McCarley, Kathleen Mulcahy, Swapna Padhe, and Elizabeth Welsh. The show's producer is Anna Ayler. Our editorial advisory group includes Andy Robinson, Sarah Phibbs, David Nicholson, Alexa Dugan, Mark Robertson, and Nielsen Turner. You can listen to other episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing to the Wiley Society Updates podcast in iTunes. You can also sign up for our mailing list to learn more about Wiley and other news and trends in research publishing by going to exchanges.wiley.com societies. Until next time, I'm Bill DeLuise. Thanks for listening.